0: King Solomon in Ecclesiastes says there's no end to the writing of books. The phase of my education, I'm trying to read for comprehensive exams for a PhD. Um, there's no end for me to the reading of books. Um, or, in some cases, the falling asleep while attempting to read the books. And, um, and that's the nature of theological reflection. I really value systematic theology. I value reasoning from God's Word to reality, to our experiences, to the life we're living. And that's what theology does. Systematic theology is the categorization of God's Word delivered in narratives and stories and poems and, and uh, prophetic poems and the, long, the, long, uh, the, the, the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, long poems through there. and um, The little short poems of a one-ditty proverb, one little verse that's two lines and it's one message. You know, um, there are so many ways God has revealed himself Uh, through history and through his account of the narrative of history. One interesting thing about that is, you know, we don't, um, as our priority, take the events of Scripture as the revelatory work. It was, when it happened, revelatory to the observers. We take the record of those events as written down by the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles prophets of the New Testament. We take that record as the revelation as our priority because we can't get to the event. We weren't witnesses to it. It wasn't revealed to us in that sense. It's revealed through the record, through the word. So you you see, we're we're focused on on the text more than the event. And the event is accessible through the text. That's one of the thoughts that's going on, you know, in the study of theology is where is the authority? If you let go of the, of the record of the scripture, you just go to the event, then you can interpret it however you want. And we're off to the races with the no end to the writing of books about, well, this is how I understand this or that event in history. And so that's one of the things that we keep our finger in the Bible as we're doing theology. Well, this is a theological summary, the riches of grace. And the theology is the theology of salvation. It's the doctrine of soteriology. And when you say the doctrine of salvation or soteriology, some people think, well, now we're going to talk about whether we're reasoning from Calvin or Arminius whether we're reasoning from uh, Augustine or Pelagius, later Augustine or Pelagius, whether we're going to talk about individual responsibility or free will, or we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and His elective decrees and His call and these things. And that, for a lot of people, is what soteriology is about. For others, it is whether... We're saved by grace through faith alone, or whether the faith that saves, as Calvin said, is never alone. That we're saved by grace, oh, and works, but it's not really saved by works. But we always have to have works, so that you're front-loading the gospel with works, if you're honest, or you're back-loading the gospel with works. and You're saying that, well, if you're truly a believer, then you'll truly act like it, and you'll be a good person. You'll bear fruit according to whatever the humans around you say would be fruit, and 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 we're off to some misinterpretation of James two. And this forcing Paul saying the clear statements of grace through faith and that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We take, we take Ephesians 2 out of the way and we say that it's, it's going to be that my works demonstrate that I'm truly a believer. When you weren't saved by your works, you're saved by grace through faith. Then the scriptures provide even for Christians to be so carnal that God brings enough discipline to them that it's called the sin unto death. And so the idea of of that you're going to add works to whether you're in Christ. The only work that puts you in Christ is the work of the cross. And so for some people, the doctrines of soteriology take you to the question of whether it's faith alone, and it is, or whether it is uh, by your effort in any way at all, including the you and your sinful flesh dealing with your sin. The way you deal with sin is you recognize in a repentant state of changing your mind that you can do nothing about your sin and that Jesus alone paid for your sin. Beloved, that's the gospel. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And what you do about your sin is you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now listen, from your sins that he paid for your sins on the cross so that you would not suffer God's wrath which abideth on your sin. And that is the best great good news there could ever be and yes you should reject your sin you should regret your sin all the r's you should repent of your sin but you are not saved by your attitude towards sin you're saved by grace through faith that is believing in christ as your savior from your sin and that's so important to get that but now i want to talk to you about something that's really important in soteriology in the doctrine of salvation. And it is not taught because we're still hung up on whether we're choosing or God is choosing. We're so hung up on whether it's faith alone or whether there's works in your faith or faith is a work or some other nonsense. Faith, beloved, is believing. But that's really not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about you believers. In this series, we're studying what is true of believers. What do you have according to the Scriptures? What do you have if you have eternal life? For one example, One of my favorite places where this is explicitly stated to encourage believers is in 1 John, an epistle written so that, as we studied last time, written to believers so that they will know what they have in Christ and how we should walk as believers in fellowship with God, having fellowship with God. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11, for example, is a magnificent statement of your security in Christ. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Can someone tell me how long eternal life lasts? Well, it's hard to say how long, because now we're talking about eternity. And we struggle with eternity versus time. How does that all work? But we could say no beginning, no end. We have the life of God that had no beginning with us. We received it at a point in our experience we first trusted in Christ, but it has no end. And it's of it's of an eternal quality, the life of God himself. He has given us eternal life. And this life is where? In his son. This life is not in what I brought to the table. It's in what God did for me through his son. But if you have the son, listen to what he says next. He who has the son has this life. He who has the Son has the life. Is the question whether you're being a good person? Is the question whether you're acting Christian? Whatever the list is that we'll say this is the list. Hey, Romans 3.23 says that we, all of us, have sinned and by that fallen short of the glory of God, and that is not just true of my pre-salvation life, my, before I first trusted in Christ. This is a problem we still deal with, as you all know. And if you don't, your spouse does. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. What determines whether you have the eternal life that God offers is if you have the Son really all depends on Him. That's the gospel. It's all about Him. As Alec Jackson wrote in the song, all about Him. (laughs) These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So notice that very quickly for John to go from the question of having the son is having the son's ear. Having the life for John obviously calls you to live it. And so there are two senses where this can be applied. If you're a believer in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. I have to become like one of these to enter the kingdom. It's childlike faith, believing in the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Believing in Christ's work on the cross for your sins. Trusting in Him and His work. If you have trusted in Christ, beloved, you have the Son. And more importantly, the Son has you. And there's there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus in Romans 8.1. But We have another concept that follows right on with that, and it's enjoying this life. It's having it in the sense of living it. And living the life is abiding in Christ. It's voluntarily walking with Him. It's the Christian spiritual life. And in the riches of divine grace, I want to talk a little bit more about your spiritual life in terms of its motivation. Your spiritual life in terms of its motivation now, the reason i started with the thought about theology and I even went to text versus event and the understanding what the bible is the reason I went to theology, even in soteriology, whether your God chooses or you voluntarily with free will, independent of God's sovereignty, choose, or whether it's by grace through faith or the faith that saves always has works or some other theological debate. The reason I started with this is because the question of motivation is often answered by theologians without recourse to the Bible. The question of Christian motivation... The reason that I live the life that's given to me is often answered, without recourse to the Bible, and that, of course, for us is a big no-no. And the Bible is a big place; it's a big book. It's a it's a library of sixty-six books, the way we count. And so the and I say that because the Hebrew Bible they counted as twenty-two, but the way we divided that out, it's six, it's a, it's a thirty-nine. So, so uh, anyway, sixty-six books of the Bible is a big place. There's a lot of information to condense to, uh, to categorize, to understand this is how we understand this and not this way. And that's what theology does. And theologians will get out on a limb of conjectures, or I should say of, of rational connections, and then just a little bit of leap of conjecture. And they'll get to a place where they make a, a, a statement that they're sure is right, but it contradicts elsewhere what other things say in scripture. It seems reasonable, for example... That not one drop of the blood of Christ, as it were, would be wasted at the cross. And so for that reason, it seems reasonable to say that the ones that Jesus died for on the cross were only those who were the elect that Jesus paid only for the sins of the elect. It's a rational conclusion someone might draw from many thoughts about the efficiency of God and his arrangement, and that only those who believe in Christ are saved, and that those people who do so are the elect, and all that reasoning. And so you end up with a Calvinistic number four, um, that, uh, that there is only the salvation provided, only the, the, the cross work was only the sins of the elect limited atonement, they call it. And, um, and I am an heir to a system of theology that has noticed that you can't really do that and be biblical. You can reason it, and it seems to make sense to you in your human reasoning. But the Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, that he's the satisfaction of God. He's a propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but those of the whole world. And you can't say of the elect and add on meaning. He says of the sins of the world and so some staunch Calvinists that, are being, you know, that I'm standing on their shoulders would say, we can't go with number, th- number four, we can be four-pointers, we can't be five-pointers. That's the, the, the historic adjustment Lewis Berry Chafer and others made as dispensationalists. They were Calvinists. So just for an example, I, I've got to make an adjustment to this system that I like, that they liked. I've got to make an adjustment to this system. And, um, and others came behind them and said, well, if you take down one of the pillars, the whole house falls down doesn't really work the way they reason at Geneva. And so let's go back to the Bible with the whole thing. And I I like that method. I think that God sovereignly chooses, and he doesn't tell you why. And I think he holds us responsible for our faith and trusting in Christ. And the Bible never resolves that. It's not resolved. It is... A a mystery to us, but it basically goes to the infinite eternal knowledge of God and His sovereign decree, which is in a whole other order from our decision making. And we need to accept that God is other than us, He's the creator of infinite glory and we are the creatures but what i'm trying to show you is that theologians get it wrong when they let the bible go and they don't try to reason their system from the scriptures and they don't encompass all the all the things i picked three marbles out of the bag and those all fit together this way well the way you broke it together it messes with the other marbles so you, you need to go back and redo your system and i'm convinced that like for example with sovereignty and free will. We're not going to systematize that the way we'd like to. We're not going to resolve that because of the infinite difference between God's eternal decisions and our finite temporal decisions. I think that's the, the solution to the problem, which is don't try to break your brain over it. It's like trying to figure out how does eternity work if it's separate from time. Time is the successive experience of existence. How can there be an eternal state without time? I'm not talking about someone measuring it with a clock. I'm talking about you are here now, and in the future you'll be in a different situation because you have moved forward in your experience. And, and I, I don't know how to reason that. I've read a lot of theologians on it. They wear me out. And hopefully I'm showing you that there's always a need to go back to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about the question? And part of the skill of theology is asking the right questions. What is the right question to ask? You know the proverbial "How many angels can dance on the head of a pin?" That's not a useful theological question because it's asking something about the the physical, the physiology, and metaphysics of angel bodies, which the Bible reveals very little about, and, and trying to make conjectures based on a lack of knowledge. And it's a silly thing, and so we, we we laugh at it. But a lot of questions we bring to the Bible are like that. But I think the Bible does answer a question what it says about your Christian motivation. What is supposed to motivate the choices that you make? And I'll lead off by saying it isn't your flesh informing your conscience. So that if you're given to a, a sinful tendency of being more uh, libertine and, uh, and reactive against self-righteousness because you're going you know, to be as, as, as willful and sinful as you want to be, that tendency in, that some have in our sin natures, that's not going to be the basis for biblical motivation. But neither is the tendency to build ourselves and our sense of righteousness on the sense that someone else is, is less righteous than we are, and we've got our five rules and we keep them. And the legalistic tendency of self-righteous arrogance in our, in our sin nature that other people are more tended to struggle with. And I think that one way historically we can kind of portray this is Luther and Calvin, the Luther-Calvin summary. Luther scholars and Calvin scholars will both cringe at what I'm about to say. But as a non-Luther or Calvin scholar, I like to summarize it this way. Luther was known for kind of saying more, if the scriptures don't prohibit something, then it's allowed. You can see how the tendencies of his, you know, that's very free. And Calvin was more of the tendency to say, if the scriptures don't allow it, then it's forbidden. That's the way it's you know the, the different the different temperaments are kind of portrayed by these great leaders of the Reformation. You can say, well, which camp do you fall into? And the answer needs to be not what Luther thought or Calvin thought. Was what does the Bible say? And I've given you a false alternative. A false. It's not one or the other. The reason we do the things that we do. Uh, I'm, pro- I'm going to propose two main ones and one that kind of follows. The two main reasons are because we believe in God and because we love Him. Because we believe in God and we love him. I'm going to demonstrate that from the Bible. And um, I've started with theology, but I've really started with the Bible. I'm answering a question, what does the Bible say about Christian motivation? And I want to answer that question from the Bible because here's what happens. I want God to bless me. So what can I do for God to bless me? Well, right there, you have a motivation that is already established. I want something for me. And one of the great touchstones of the scriptures is if you hang on to you, you lose access to what God wants to do with you. I want God to bless me. Well, then, then let go of, of your expectations and go fully in faith and love for what God wants. And that's real relationship with him. So launching from that question of, of motivation, let's define it. I believe motivation can be defined this way. This is what I think it means. Why we do the things we do. I think you can get a lot more fancy, a lot, of, a lot of fancy ways of saying this, but I'm trying to be plain sense. I'm just beating potatoes here. Your motivation is sort of the undergar- under underlying reason behind an action that is kind of helping you do what you do. Why did you just scratch your ear? It itched. That's a kind of a motivation. It was uncomfortable. I reduced the, the I, I, I addressed that which was causing the discomfort, and now I'm comfortable again. I'm back to neutral. And, it, and interestingly, on the scratching of your ear, it was really uncomfortable. You scratched. That felt really good to scratch it, but now we're back to, back to zero. We were at ne- a negative, we're at a positive. Now we're, that's, but, but the reason you did it, that's your motivation. Under motiv- motivation, that's a, an interesting concept, and I don't want to get into emotion and psychology at all. I want to talk about the Bible. There's the, this other note related notion in our language called motives. What are your motives? Motives are the thing we're after, the goal, the desire that you have. In that ear scratching illustration, my motive was to stop itching. <laughs> that was really uncomfortable, so I wanted to. Be, and so I'm trying to be comforted. Com- I'm trying to be comfortable. So uh, why? Um, Why we do the thing we do, we could call motivation. The motive that underlies that is what you're after, that goal. And I think these are two really helpful and related, obviously, concepts. Like, what's the goal? And when you talk about it that way, you ask the Bible a question, what's my goal? Beloved, it is not that I get something for me. If that's my starting and ending goal, I'm going to fail. I'm going to lose out. And because that's a sinful tendency in us to make everything about us. So with that said, let's ask the question, what are typical human motivations? What are the typical reasons that people do the things that they do? The numbers came out in a study in the last five years or so about the, the worldwide poverty index and how the, the poverty levels had been raised, people in poverty have been raised out of poverty at an unprecedented level Um, And they attributed it to the effect of capitalism in the West and its impact on on the global market, the global economy, and this elevation of the world populations. And so some people will say, obviously, letting the individual intelligent brain made in God's image decide what it's going to do with its property, that basic unit of individual volition, that's the best use of resources the decentralization of resources letting the individual do what he does with his material because the more you aggregate decisions into a centralized power the dumber the decisions become with the mass of resources it's better for one person to figure out how to manage his lawn than for the town to say all the lawns have to be this way and we've hired a, a whole you know team of uh, an army of of landscapers and and no that that's that's going to be inefficient and it's going to it's going to be um, it's going to be Soviet in its effect. We're going to have some really nasty-looking uniformity because, because you've taken the wealth of the, of the intellectual spread and you've centralized it and you've disregarded all that, all that God-given intelligence and wisdom and so forth. And so um, why would we promote individual freedom with property? Because we want to have good lives. And we, and we might be even altruistic and say, I want the other people to do well too. Right? And, and that's, that's a consequentialist sort of motivation. But I think an even better reason is because God made man in his image. And we honor what God did in creating that individual volition. That volition, man responding to God as an individual, that's your basic building block of civilization, of all interactions and all governments. It's the individual with responding to God. And so we would protect conscience as a principle because we love God and we honor what He made. And then we look at the question of distribution of property. What does the Bible say? Distribution of property. That God gave Israel their inheritance, that God gave the nations their property, their their habitations, and specified the boundaries of those habitations, that God, who owns everything, is the distributor. So when someone takes God's place and tries to say, we're going to redistribute, uh-oh, whoever does that, that's a problem. The robber baron's a problem. The robber government baron is a problem. And so instead of just consequence, we'd say, what does God want? What's he doing? What's his design? And how can we make decisions on that basis? And I think that's a biblical motivation for why I would say protect individual conscience in the distribution of private property and how God has made that allotment. So that when it's time to take care of the widows and orphans, it's better that it be our hearts, our conscience before God, our responsibility to Him and care for others, and we join together and do that as we did in the United States before the welfare state. It would be better to do that and have local uh, control, local accountability, and local awareness it would be better for the people we're serving, it would be better for the people that, that are serving than a centralized government cut a check and um, build a, um, the, the, the urban rot that has issued forth in fatherlessness through the whole country and destroyed uh, you know, the civilization. It would be better to decentralize, and that's a book by Marvin Alasky called The Tragedy of American Compassion. It historically documents what we did before the welfare state, just for example. But see, the, the, what I'm asking is, why do you do the things that you do and we can say, well, I like the outcome I get. And the Bible does provide that. But we could also say, what does God want and what's, the, what's, what's relating to him look like in the decision? So why, why are, why, what, are typical, why, what are typical human motivations is my question. Think about why you do what you do when you're not thinking biblically or why people tend to do the things that they do. There's one word that motivates what we do. Including, I want God to bless me. And I do, and you do, but there's one word, and it's self. What does my bank account look like? What is my, what, what's, what's happening for me? Capital One, what's in your wallet? <laughs> self, it's about me. And in what way? What do we want for self? Well, We want promotion in one way or the other. And I don't mean you get a higher job, higher ranking job at work, although that's one form of promotion. What are ways, y'all share with me a little bit, what are ways in our culture where self-promotion is fairly evident as a cultural norm, where it's the great motivation of our time? How do you see self-promotion out there? So yeah, people want to be famous. So the idea of fame, which is a total lie. Oh, the numbers on... Early deaths among people that have been celebrated as rock and roll stars since the advent of, of that form of celebrity. Uh, death in rock and roll is an ugly, ugly story. It's not just Elvis. Celebrity Celebrities one way. Uh, what, what, are other, what What's happening with that idea of fame at the rank and file level of all the children of the culture? Social media. Who said that? See, Alan, i got to pay him $5 every time he answers the right question that I, I gave him the list beforehand. Um, <laughs> you can make a check out to the CEF of Rhode Island, Connecticut. Um, so y'all get the question before Alan answers. Um, now, social media, the whole, the whole point, it started with the YouTube thing, in a way, broadcast yourself. And what's the goal in social media is to get likes, to get checks, to get hits, to, get, uh, to go viral. And I think it's interesting that we call it being viral. <laughs> viral is usually not good, right? But that's what happens when you get enough clicks that everyone's now seeing this same thing. becomes a phenomenon. Charlie bit my finger. You know, that kind of, it becomes this viral social phenomenon. And, and the reason that it's so addicting, the reason people do it, is because they want likes. They want people to see them. They want people to know that they're there and they have this desire for this self-promotion. Now, not everybody suffers with this, but it is a big motivation among young people now. And, and such that if you just shut off all social media, if you don't have it, our kids, we're not going to have it. Our kids, yeah, yeah, our kids, we're not going to have social media because they don't need to be struggling with that type of artificial motivation as they're learning to serve God in their choices. Now, maybe your kids are on social media and, and you've got to figure out how to regulate that. But the purpose behind it, the goal of it, oh, it's just communication to connect with their friends. It's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. And so this idea of self-promotion, it's so common. Anybody have a Bible verse on the answer to the, to the bug, to the plight, to the, the, the cancer, the blight of self-promotion? Yeah, not think of yourselves uh, more highly than you should in Romans chapter 12. And think of one another as more important than yourselves in Philippians 2. My favorite is, uh, as you might know, is 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will, what, exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him for he cares for you. We have this desire for promotion. I think that there is a God-given sense that has been corrupted by sin, but sin always turns us in on ourselves. We are motivated by wealth. All of us are, and I mean all of us human beings. I don't mean the United States of America. I mean all people. Every time somebody says in anti-Semitic tones, the, the Jews, they want the money. I saw Iraqis tell me that over in Iraq, and I said, do you not like money? You Iraqi people here in the hospital, y'all don't like money? Well, we, we do. We, we like money, too. So, so you mean that you like it, too? Yes, but they're better at getting it or something. Well, we could talk about the Abrahamic Covenant if we want. But the point is that uh, everybody has this, this striving after wealth, And all the Gentiles seek it. Who said that? Who said the Gentiles seek after these things? Anybody know? Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6. When he's telling you how to think about wealth, God is providing for your needs. He will provide your needs. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things, these things of your necessity will be added to you. And he's saying that in the context that you can't serve God and wealth. Because the argument from wealth is, well, I just want more. And you say, well, you don't need more. You just need what you need. So then you say, well, I I just want what I need i just have to meet basic needs and jesus attacks that service of wealth too and says you're not even in control of getting your needs god will provide your needs you be about his business so we're after wealth and we're after promotion and those are you can obviously see, see those are the same thing and if our ear itches we scratch it we want satisfaction we have this desire to feel comfortable to have satisfaction of certain urges or appetites and you have wonderful God-given appetites. God-given appetites. We're told in, uh, I think it's 2 Peter 1, to long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby. Long for the pure milk of the word. like So let's talk about that baby. That baby needs some satisfaction. All he, in my case, or she, whatever a girl is, uh, we can't have them. All he wants all she wants is to eat and they're not even conscious of this motivation this desire but they have it they want to eat and it's a god-given appetite because guess what happens if they eat survival it's excellent that they do that and so when you when you see what peter does with that god-given appetite in our bodies and he says you are now commanded to long for god's word like a baby longs for milk that's a, that's not a, a suggestion that's a command wow, I I need to make a choice about what I long for, what I want in life. And it's a different way of thinking, I'm sure. But there there are these motivations we have of satisfaction. We have God-given appetites. Hormones cause a God-given appetite that is satisfied by God's design in His beloved and beautiful covenant institution of marriage. There is a legitimate appetite, and it's very similar to hunger for food. And, And we're wrong to deny the legitimacy of that appetite—it's not wrong to be hungry for food, but it's wrong to oversatisfy it. You overindulge, and then you get the problems that are associated with overindulgence. It's wrong to satisfy the other God-given, related, similar appetite with an illicit satisfaction. Am I using enough syllables to talk to you, moms and dads? It's—it's it, it's a God-given appetite, but it's got a right. Or a right application, a right satisfaction. And but we don't think about what God wants with that satisfaction. We go after our own way to please ourselves. And the Bible's full of examples of how that's the wrong choice. Hopefully you understand where we're headed. Jesus provides a counterintuitive rationale about self-serving in Matthew ten. It's counterintuitive and it's profound and it's also echoed in Luke 17. In another teaching context, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In the discipleship discourse of of Matthew 10, he who doesn't take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now Matthew is writing to a Jewish Christian readership. He's writing to believing Jews that are in the first generation, the first few years of the church. Probably somewhere between 45 and 55, Matthew wrote these words. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And beloved, if that doesn't motivate you, if that doesn't hit you with some, some, some heavy responsibility that is placed on you, you're not reading Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 correctly. If you dodge this by saying, well, he's talking to Israel in that context, so that's not abiding on. If you miss this, that this is the way your Savior thinks about you coming after him, that there is a worthiness that you are being challenged to embrace. Beloved, this is very helpful material for your life. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now notice Jesus didn't select the cross for himself, as it were. It was handed to him, and he took it. We, in Hebrews 12, run the race that is set before us. We don't say, well, I'm going to go run this race. God's got you. He has suffering It's going to bring about proven character. And he's going to ask you to trust him through it and walk through it in faith. And even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil because he's with you. But it's coming. And the question is, as I represent him to a world that opposes him, that crucified him for proclaiming the light and offering a relationship with the Father, am I willing to be counted with him? Or like Peter and the other disciples, will I scatter when the persecution arises? That's what he's talking about in context. But in verse 39, you have this counterintuitive proverb. He says, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Put that into your, self, uh, uh, your self-aggrandizing motivation, your self-promote-self like promote self kind of motivation of, i got to get more for me. Work that mathematic formula with this data input. We all need to do it. The very most and highest for me is that God get the most and highest out of me. The very greatest and best thing that could ever happen to any of us for eternity is that we let go of ourselves and God do whatever he wants with us. If you lose you to go after him, then he makes the most he will ever and ever can make of you. And that's why I say it's counterintuitive. It seems to me like if I go after what I need for me and I just promote myself, I mean, after all, I have to eat or whatever motivation, whatever rationalization I provide. If I just serve myself and take care of those and then whatever is left over, I'll give to God. Then it seems like um, that would be the common sense thing to do. But Jesus says that's actually a path of death, of, of loss, of fail, of waste. Lose yourself for him. Let go of you. I was speaking to uh, somebody that's involved in fire rescue at the, this last conference I was at, I forget the context of the conversation. Um, and, uh, but I had a lot of great fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ at this conference. We were all, uh, you know, having a headache and having to drink water after the lectures because they are so technical and awesome. But, um, but I was talking about my understanding of the a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Last week we talked about how Jesus, how, how, how John says this is a new commandment, but it's an old commandment. And my understanding is, as I told you last time, the new commandment is um, new because Jesus told them in the upper room right before the beginning of the church age that we, in the Holy Spirit's power, would love as Christ had loved—not just love your neighbor as yourself, like in the Old Testament Leviticus 19, but that you'd love your neighbor as Christ, you love one another as Christ has loved you. And then that makes it new, but it's old because by the time John writes in the 80s or 90s AD, Jesus said this back in the 30s. And so they've been this has been the ethic of these new this new group of believers following Jesus Christ, um, out of you know, the remnant of Israel believing in Christ. And and so this new ethic, but it's an old ethic at that time. And um and I, I illustrated it this way. I said, He said, that's really good for a fire and rescue illustration. I said, you know, if um if I'm trying to help you off with the fire escape and you, you know, your hand's about to slip and I'm going to help save you, the love your neighbor yourself is that you're stabilized on the platform and you're going to anchor yourself with one arm and you reach that spare arm down and bring that person up to where you are and you're safe and he's safe. That's love your neighbor as yourself, in a sense, because you end up in the same place. I'm on the platform, he's on the platform, we're both safe, right? I didn't disregard his needs to just, you know, to make myself comfortable. I uh, exerted some energy and helped him to get where I was, right? But what if the case requires that for you to save the person, you need both hands, this is love one another as I've loved you. You just let go and grab him. And you're like, well, you need somebody to stabilize. You're going to fall if you let go. That's the idea. He's, Jesus has you. You're, you're with him. He's going to provide your needs. He's got, your, he's got his Holy Spirit in you making you able to do this. So you just don't look at you. You look at what, that's the idea of self sacrificial love. You're not looking at how you can stabilize your situation. You're looking at what God would do and you're trusting him and you're doing it in faith and you're doing it in love. And that's what we're going to call Christian motivation. But this is, this is radical. I know I'm describing a radical way of thinking. The, the giving of the Macedonians out of their poverty overflowed, Paul says, in their liberality. And my God will supply all your needs, he tells the Corinthians. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so that one way to talk about this is giving. It's obviously not my favorite thing to talk about with this. But, but think about it. Um, let you go to disregard what you need to retain for yourself and think about what God wants. Because let's be like me. I I don't multitask very well. I really don't. So, I mean, I used to tell myself I did, but I was really switching, and I was dropping balls all over the place. So I don't really multitask. I'm a man. And so um, I can focus on taking care of myself. I can focus on God's agenda for someone else. Well, i got to pick one. And in Matthew 10.39, it's obvious which one to pick. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So what are biblical motivations? I've I've surveyed the way we think from the flesh, including I want God to bless me because it's about me. When uh, we have this proverbial statement in the Psalms, Um, that you, I I, I forget how to paraphrase it. He says, um, oh yeah, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And some of us with our fleshly motivations think, oh, well for me to get what I want, I've got to delight myself in the Lord. I want X, Y, and Z. I want this kind of lifestyle. I want this kind of uh, a bottom line on my, my budget. I want this kind of, I want a building that'll hold the whole church family for fellowship and sanctuary time. I want to teach in, in the whole group, and I want to fellowship together in a building that'll do that. I want that's the desire of my heart. So for me to get that, what I need to do is delight myself in the Lord, and then He'll give it to me. See, that's what we do in our arrogance and our foolishness, our selfishness. Now I'm not thinking that way about the new building. I'm ready for the Lord. No problem exists in our lives that the Rapture doesn't solve. So um, you know that <laughs> we've been hanging on to that hope for the Rapture for this building for 200 years. All right, but, but, but we do this. We say, I've got this thing that I want, and so I'm going to do this transaction with Jesus. I'm going to do this sympathetic magic, right? I'm going to do magic, and that's what it is. I'm going to do something for God, and then he's going to do something for me. We're going to make a trade, whether I say a spell and light a candle or not. But that's not what the, the, the verse means. Delight yourself in the Lord means that that's what you desire. You want him, And if you choose to go after him, he will give you himself. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desire of your heart. And when you ask anything in accordance with his will, you're asking for God to have his way. And when you're asking whatever whatever you want as you're abiding in Christ, your prayers are according to the things that God wants because you're abiding in Christ. So it isn't magic. It's actually much better, much more powerful. It's God working in your heart. What are our biblical motivations? I believe the first motivation in the Bible presented for obeying God is faith. The Bible consistently teaches, beginning in the Genesis message, the whole point of the book of Genesis is that God is a trustworthy creator. He is is trustworthy, and you need to do what he says as you trust him, as you step out in faith. And that is the message of the book of Genesis. And when Abraham takes a misstep. It's a lack of faith in God's promise, and so it issues forth in an act of of willfulness or disobedience. And all three of Abraham's great mistakes, the two givings of his wife and the one uh, taking of a second wife, are attacks on marriage. And this is interesting. People don't think of Abraham as a story about marriage, but watch this. Abraham is given a promise to have a son, have, have children from his own body and they'll receive the land and there'll be a blessing and all these things in Genesis 12, immediately gives his wife to the, to the Pharaoh in Egypt. It's his half sister. Apparently she's got like supernatural levels of, of, uh, of, of beauty. She's like an amazingly beautiful woman. The whole world would be amazed at her beauty. And so the king who has any choice of, of, of women he wants in, in Egypt says he would have to take that woman because she's that gorgeous. She's Miss Ur of the Chaldees, 2000 BC, right? And, and, uh, and so, Abram, uh, so, so Abram gives his wife to Pharaoh right after God said, you're going to have a child, you're going to have sons that will, will, um, will you know, you'll, you'll have this blessing, I'll make you a blessing, make your name great and give you a, 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 a household because you're going to leave your father's household. Well, that implies children. Later, he's going to explicitly say, see, you'll have children from your body. They'll be like the sand of the seashore, the stars of the heavens. Abraham doesn't believe God's promise when he's threatened with his life because he's going to die if, if Pharaoh... God said he's going to do some great things with him. So he doesn't trust God's promise. He looks at a circumstance and in fear gives his wife to Pharaoh to save his own life. It's very stupid. Technically, she didn't lie. I said, "Say so, you're my sister. And she's his half-sister. It's a long time ago. That was different. What are we saying? We're saying that Abraham made a major failure and God worked despite the failure. God worked around it. God's merciful and gracious to us and we make mistakes. But God uh, shut down that work and she wasn't compromised in Pharaoh's harem and then the, the, the truth came out. And he did it later again with the king of the Philistines, Abimelech. The tell, tell him you're my sister. And he gave her away. And he abdicated his responsibility. It's one of the most horrible uh, stories in the Bible that he would try, he would do this to save his own neck. And we're all like, oh, that's really nasty. But notice it's an attack on God's design of one man, one woman. It's also an attack on God's design of family because God said he would bring forth seed from Abraham's body. And that's going to be through marriage and children. But Abraham can't have children, his wife is barren. And so they don't have any kids. And so. Is, Genesis 15 is one born in my household. Eliezer Damascus going to be, is he going to be the, the heir? He won't be my son. It'll be somebody in my house. That's my reasoning. No, God said from your own body, right? And then you have the Abrahamic covenant ceremony in Genesis 15 and the vision of the, of the, the God passing between the elements um, of this, of this covenant ceremony. And God says, I'm going to bring your people into Egypt and But these attacks of, of Abraham's failure and lack of faith are attacks on marriage. And they don't have any kids. And so we have Operation Hagar. And Sarah has a great idea. Sarah, she's going to say, okay, well, here's what we'll do in this culture. If, if, if you take a second wife and she's under me, she's my slave, then her baby becomes somehow associated with me. And so I'll get a baby that way. And they, get, they do, Hagar, Operation Egypt. And Hagar and Ishmael in the story of Abraham's first son. And it's another attack on God's design of marriage. Anytime someone tells you that the Old Testament allows polygamy, you take them to Genesis and you say, no. The Old Testament shows one man, one woman in Genesis 2. And then when it's tested in Genesis chapters uh, uh, 12 through 25, we say that's a big fail. It's demonstrated as a fail every time. To, To really put a clincher on God's high perspective, high view of marriage in Genesis He makes it so that these great, great grandparent age people are having their first baby. Isaac is the miracle boy born to an 89-year-old mother and a 100-year-old father. God is demonstrating something. I said I would do it. You need to trust me, so do what I said. And that's faith that I issue forth. Because of my faith, I do what he says. I trust him in his promise, and so I obey his commands. I trust in his promise, so I obey his commands. And that is the book of Genesis. It's so so strange to me that the three things that Abraham really gets wrong are attacks on marriage, and then the miracle boy that God gives them, this Isaac, this baby of laughter. Abraham laughed first, and then, and then she laughed second in Genesis 18. The Lord's outside the tent. This is so great. The Lord's outside the tent, and he says, You're gonna have a baby this time next year. And Sarah's in there snickering to herself, and the Lord says, Why is she laughing? She's in the tent, they're outside the tent around the fire. Why is she in there laughing? Oh, I didn't lie. Oh, you did lie. I, I didn't laugh. She says, I, I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, Oh, oh, but you did laugh. Paragraph. <laughs> God knows. He knows, and, and we're laughing at his promise. You're gonna call the kid laughter. Yitzhak means laughter. And that's why they call him laughter, because Abraham thought it was hilarious when God told him at, at a late age. And then, and then Sarah's laughing too. And he's the miracle child. And it's from this one man, one woman. It's amazing how the Bible fits together. The story of Abraham is very much one of your great chapters in the Bible book on what is marriage and does God honor it. The Genesis message is about faith. Faith in God's promises that issues forth in obedience to his commands. So by faith, Hebrews 11 says, he left the country that was his and he went to a land that God promised him, which he never received. He was looking for a, a city whose maker was God. So he's believing God's promise, even to the, to the radical point of, okay, you're going to have a baby um, from your body, and it's going to be your wife Sarah and her body, and you're going to have this baby, and he's a miracle. And then what does God tell him to do as the great finale of Abraham's story? In Genesis 22, you take your son, your only son, whom you loveth, whom thou lovest. You take your miracle child that we've waited your whole life for. You go take him to a mountain. I'll show you in the mountains of Moriah. A place I'll show you in the mountains of Moriah, and you offer him as a sacrifice. And in that story in Genesis two, there's no uh, who was it? Um, George C. Scott. Oh, why, Lord, I can't stand. And the camera angle is like over the top of Abraham, and he's like spinning around. I can't stand the. No, there's no drama in the way Moses narrates the, the story. Yes, sir. By this time, Hebrews 11 says, he expected a resurrection. God could do anything. He gave us a baby this way. I'll just trust him and obey him. And Abraham has finally learned. The greatest motivation as we start the Bible with, for obeying God is our trust in him. And this is very helpful for us. In James 2, James 2 is about faith and works. And I'll show you my uh, faith by my works and that whole rational, rational process. People have very, common, very popular read James as very accessible to read. And they said, okay, so we misread Paul. On justification, because James says that Abraham was justified by faith and works. And they have then tried to reinterpret Paul to mean something that it can't mean when he says, By grace through faith you've been saved, and not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works. And the solution to the problem is that James is writing to Christians who need to walk in faith, and so, in trusting God's promises, they obey his commands. It's a common thread through the entire scriptures. It is before the Mosaic law was given. It's encoded in the Mosaic law. And it's for us who don't walk by faith or by sight. We walk by faith and we're not under the law. For against such things of the fruit of the spirit, there is no law. And the principle here is our disobedience indicates a lack of faith in God and his promises. That's a very obvious principle that's like a basic material when you're disobedient to your Lord and Savior, when you don't say, God, you're God and I'm not, it's because in that moment, you're not trusting Him. And I'm talking to believers when I say this. I'm not talking to unbelievers who don't know God and have no spiritual life, have no Holy Spirit and ability to walk by the Spirit or to quench and grieve the Spirit. I'm talking to believers in Christ, the recipients of the New Testament. It was written to Christians with all the commands that we find in the New Testament to believers the motivation to do what God said is to trust him and that love one another as I've loved you is self-sacrificial and it's going to hurt and you need that faith that God has you. So my friend on the fire escape said uh, that's a really good illustration for, for uh, firefighters because we have to save people in those kinds of circumstances. I didn't even know he was a chaplain talking to the fire department. But it's really, yeah, you, you've got somebody else holding you and so you let, you let him do his job to take care of you and you go after the thing that he wants you to go after and you do it in faith. And that's the Christian life and Christian love. What are our biblical motivations? Does anybody know another motivation we have besides faith in God? Well, Jesus makes it very explicit that you do what you do for him because you love him. And faith is not love. And love is not faith, but these are related things that we do toward him. We can say that in both cases of faith and love toward God, he initiated. He loved us first, and so we love him back. He saved us. We love him for saving us. But he's also faithful and trustworthy and has demonstrated himself again and again. If you pay attention to the Bible, if you start in Genesis and you get to the Gospels and you hear, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved as you're reading through, understand he's demonstrated himself again and again that you can trust him, that he's faithful, that he's righteous, that he loves you. So love, our responsive love to God is a second great motivation for obedience Who is your first love in Revelation 2, 1 through 7? The problem with the church of Ephesus is not doctrine, and it's not the application of doctrine. It's love. They don't love God as they're carrying out his word. It's strange. It's bizarre. It's painful. And he's not talking to unbelievers that need to become believers. He's talking to believers who are not loving God. They've lost that awe. They've lost that worship that what I do is because I love him. They've lost Deuteronomy 6.5. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And that is the first love. When he says you've left your first love, it's not, mere, it's not confusing. Jesus is obviously saying you've stopped loving God in your motivations to be doctrinally sound. So I know right doctrine. I know the right choices to make based on what the scriptures say. And I deny the deeds, as he says, of the Nicolaitans, whoever those are. Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to operate correctly among, uh, with, when, when, uh, when faced with heresy And I'm going to understand the scriptures according to what they say. And I'm doctrinally sound and I'm down the line. If my motivation is self-righteousness, I can be doctrinally sound and sinful at the same time. If my motivation is it just makes me feel good to, to, to do the right thing, I'm still not loving God in my action. And Jesus castigates the Ephesian church for this reason, the first letter in Revelation 2 and 3. And John 14, 15, he's very explicit. The same writer of Revelation 2 said, Jesus said, and so the only thing we know about Jesus is what the apostles told us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If that is not a statement of motivation for why, the motive behind the action that I take, I don't know what is a statement of motivation. Now, I'm trying to get it from the text to answer the theological question. I didn't start with, how will God bless me? I started with, what does God say motivates me? And Jesus says, love for him motivates keeping his commandments. If you love me, it's a condition, then, it's a logical conditional, then you will keep my commandments. Prior issue is loving him. The way I demonstrate it is in obeying him. I once had a friend tell me I really struggle when people say, uh, start talking about Christian obedience. It really sets my teeth on edge. And I said, why? Why? And he said, because people think that they're going to do what God said out of the energy of the flesh, that they're going to do it from their own sinful resources instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit as they abide in Christ, or as I call it, the Christian spiritual life, the empowerment that God gives us as we walk with him. And my answer is, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus, that's the only answer. So your theological concern about works of the flesh among Christians Well taken. That's right. We walk by the Spirit, not uh, according to the flesh. Right? But still, beloved, you believers empowered by the Spirit of God, you're commanded to love Him and so obey Him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21 in John 14, just to grab these, to kind of cherry pick these verses in in the, the narrative there of Jesus' words. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Let me ask you a question based on John 14, 21. Can you have fellowship with Christ if you won't obey him? Can you expect that Jesus disclose himself to you if you won't obey him? That's a statement of relationship by the way. You have to have mutual disclosure. You have to communicate yourself to the other and the other to you to have a relationship. Can you expect that's this is the defining passage on fellowship that first John elaborates on. Can you expect fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ if you're disobedient to him? No. All right. So let's do some more theology real quick. Just do some correlation. If I disobey Jesus, what's that another word for? Yeah, it's sin. Okay. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. What's another word for lust of the flesh being fulfilled in my choices? Sin. Can you do the math here? Disobeying Christ is walking according to the flesh. And so <laughs> you have to obey Him. You have to walk with Him in fellowship with Him to enjoy His self-disclosure. To receive the familial fellowship love of the Father in verse 21. 23 Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. There's an obvious condition. He'll keep my word, keep my commands, his obedience. And my father will love him. Again, he says it just like in verse 21. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now that statement is very powerful. And some have said, well, this means that the, you become a believer. This is talking about if you, if you believe in Christ as your savior. It doesn't say if you believe in Christ. It says if you keep his commandments. Do not tell the non-believer, do this, this, and this. Don't gossip. Jesus commands us not to gossip. This is not the way we get a non-believer saved, by telling them not to gossip and come back and, and we'll see how you're doing. They'll never have life if they're in their energy of the flesh attempting to please God. But he tells believers that obedience is how you love him, and obedience and his love is how you have his abode in you. That's fellowship. Fellowship. It's conditional here, and it's fellowship with Him. And I believe exegesis or leading out what the meaning of the passage actually is. Not eisegesis, reading my ideas into it. Exegesis tells me that there is a special sense where the Father and Son come to have their abode in us. And I believe this is described in Ephesians 5.18 as the filling of the Holy Spirit. I believe this is what it means to walk in fellowship with God. And in other words, when you break fellowship with God through personal sin, it's a much bigger deal than you think. It's a much bigger sacrifice of spiritual blessing on the altar of self-satisfaction of your lust and your sin nature. And that's what happens when we sin. It's a much bigger deal than sometimes we think. And that's the nature of fellowship with God. Just some thoughts today on motivation. The two great motivations for the Christian life, I believe... Our faith and love. Faith in God's promises, so we obey what he said. Loving him. And so as Paul said, we have his ambition to be pleasing to him. Why do you want to please the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you love him. Why do you love him? Because of all that he's done for you. We love him because he first loved us. This is Christian motivation. This is not unbeliever motivation. This is not energy of flesh motivation. This is what your spiritual life is made for. Never miss the power of God's awesome commands on your life. The commands of God for your life include being filled with the Spirit. They include walking by the Spirit. They include loving one another as Christ has loved us. They include in fact bearing the fruit of the Spirit according to 2 Peter chapter 1 where he says supply these qualities that Paul says the Spirit grows in you in Galatians chapter 5. The Christian spiritual life is a relationship and that relationship is trusting in God and loving Him. And in trust and love, I am motivated and equipped to do what He asks of me. If I do that, I will be carrying out the will of God for my life. I know God's will for my life because I have the New Testament Scriptures that, out of which, uh, that grow out of the Old Testament Scriptures. I know God and I know what He's told me. I know what I'm supposed to be about. I know that, for example, we're to, buy, to combine together and make disciples of all the nations. I know His will because He's told me. Our Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your grace, of Your claim on our lives, on the relationship that we so often in our carnality want to make transactional. We want to make this relationship, if I do this, then You'll do that. And we don't understand that it's walking in faith, in love, that produces these acts these choices, these thoughts, decisions, actions of obedience. Father, don't let us obey in the flesh, but not the spirit. Don't let us obey after the sin nature to exalt ourselves or to please ourselves or to advance ourselves independent of your purposes. But let us do that math that Jesus gave us. If we would lose our lives for your sake, then we'll find it that our whole life is hidden with Christ and God. Help us recognize what's true by virtue of our position. And as we trust in what you've told us about our position in Christ, we walk worthy of our calling to bring honor and glory to you every step of the way. We ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.